for the message this evening. It is in Luke chapter 16 that we will be reading, verses 1 through 13. Luke 16, 1 through 13, and stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the living and abiding word of the Lord. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, we we do thank you for this time we have to consider the words of Christ. And we ask that as we look at this parable and its application, that we would rightly understand it, uh, that we would also uh, consider ourselves in light of it. Uh, that this word would be a word that penetrates our hearts, leads us to faith, leads us to repentance, leads us to obedience. Uh, So we ask for wisdom by the Spirit as we uh, look at this passage now, and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we begin chapter 16 of Luke, we come to perhaps one of the most difficult parables our Lord ever taught. And it's difficult because any time anybody talks about it, we all get in my experience, people all get confused as to what this parable is about, and we kind of can go different ways and pull different parts out of it. Uh, it is a difficult parable because of a, some of the language that's within it, the points that are drawn out of it, and the idea of taking an unrighteous example and then making a righteous application is rather counterintuitive, I think. But in another sense, the point of the parable is quite simple and straightforward, There is actually a very basic application in this parable once we understand what it means. 
The Gospel of Luke contains numerous instances of our Lord teaching about wealth, riches, the use of possessions, covetousness. Uh, This is a major concern in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The most recent example that we encountered was in Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool, as we call it. And in that parable, uh, we recall how this man had uh, contented himself in his great abundance and he thought he was safe, but he did not know that that very night he was going to face the judgment seat of God. Now, chapter 16 of Luke actually deals with this topic quite a bit. We begin with this parable, and then we'll find next week that verses 14 through 18 talk about the Pharisees who were lovers of money. And Jesus will rebuke them for their love of money and call them to account for that. And then, at the end of the chapter, you'll find another parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you recall what that parable is about. We have this rich uh, ruler, a rich man uh, that feasted sumptuously every day. He'd walk in and out of his house, and there was this man sitting at his his door who was completely destitute, who had no food, and he was in such bad shape that the dogs came and licked his sores. It's a very serious and intense picture that our Lord gives us, and we'll learn about how that man, the rich man, the unnamed rich man, goes to Hades, goes to hell. And he is separated forever from the place of the righteous. So if you take all that together, you'll see that chapter 16 of Luke deals much with this matter of wealth, possessions, what we do with what God has entrusted to us. Now before we go into the details of the parable, I want to actually go to the end of our passage to see if we can shed some light on what this parable is about from the surrounding context. And then we can go into the details itself. So we're going to go we're going to jump ahead to verse 13 which is very straightforward. It says no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So our Lord in many cases in the gospel of Luke speaks to the exclusivity of discipleship to him. You can't follow Jesus and follow all these other gods. You can't have Jesus and have your idols. You can't even have yourself, it says. Jesus said that to us. You have to hate your family. You have to hate yourself to follow Jesus. So you certainly can't love money if you have to hate yourself and hate your family in the process. There's no, no place for the idolatry of mammon, which is just another word for possessions. Now, we know also that Jesus uh, taught this parable in light of the Pharisees and their perspectives on these things. If you look at verses 14 through 15, which we didn't read yet, but 14 and 15 speaks, I think, to the importance of this parable and the one that follows. Here's what we read in verse 14. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. That actually says in the Greek, they turned their noses up at him. They were mocking Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now what did God know about their hearts? That it was filled with covetousness. They were lovers of money. They weren't lovers of God. And this parable tested the heart of the disciples and by extension, of course, rebuked the Pharisees for their ungodly perspective on possessions. So that's some of the background of this parable that we're going to see at the end of it. But now let's go into the details of the parable itself. Now you'll recall that at times our Lord would use an unrighteous example 
to then argue for a greater righteous example. Uh, one, one particular instance of this is in Luke itself, Luke 18, the parable of the persistent widow. You remember in that parable, the point is that this widow would come to this awful judge, this man that did not fear God or care about other people, and she would persistently knock trying to get something out of him. And eventually he had to answer her because she was so persistent. And the point was, if an unrighteous judge will answer, then how much more the God, our Father in heaven, who loves to hear the prayers of his people, answer when we cry out. That was the the contrast. Now, in a somewhat similar way, slight differences, but a similar way, in this parable, I believe that what our Lord is doing is he's saying, here is an example of, of unrighteous shrewdness, how much more then should the children of light be shrewd in a righteous manner? We have this this awful unrighteous man who is dishonest and he is thoughtful about his future. How much more should the children of light, i.e. us, the followers of Christ, be shrewd? in a righteous manner concerning our future. If the sons of this world are thinking about their temporal needs, he was thinking about his temporal home. I need a home. I have needed somewhere to live. I better be shrewd about how to get there. Then how much more should the children of light be shrewd in thinking about their eternal home? So that's some of the contrast. Now let's look at the parable itself. I'll read verses 1 through 4. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So here's the situation. There's a steward that was entrusted with the, the possessions and the property of a particular rich man. The steward uh, had the ability to dispense the money that this rich man had in different ways. He was keeping track of all these accounts of debt that this man had. And what happened in the process of time is that the master learned that the steward was wasting it. So he was in some way or another not managing it well. And obviously the master does not like this, so he says, okay, give me an accounting of all that you've wasted, and by the way, you're out of a job. And the steward is concerned about this. He says, I can't dig, which is a reference to manual labor. He says, I I can't do that. I'm not strong enough to do that, which may have not been true, but that was his perspective. He says, I am not going to do manual labor, and I'm ashamed to beg, so I need to figure out a solution to this problem. No one else is going to hire me as a steward after this, if they hear anything about what I've done with this man's wealth, so what am I going to do? Well, he says, here's what I'm going to do. In my office as steward, I have the ability to legally manage my master's accounts. He has debts. And so what if I go to the people who have these debts and I have them rewrite their legal bills of debt to my advantage and to their advantage? It was very cunning. 
Because if he was able to have them rewrite these bills of debt, it's possible that from a legal standpoint, the master couldn't do anything. The stewards still had the legal rights over these things, and perhaps they could have gotten those bills rewritten in such a way that the master could do nothing. The people that had the debts were now less in debt, and the unrighteous steward now had a good plan for where he could live because these people would be indebted to him. So here's what verses 5 through 7 say. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. These are some significant reductions of debt. one case, it was 50% reduction. In another case, there was a 20% reduction. And this was quite a bit that these people owed. And so this was very shrewd of him. He's using his position to gain for himself a place to live when he's out of a job. Now, this is amazing to us, I think, that we come to verse 8, and the master commends the steward. He already didn't like the steward. He says, you're out of a job. You're wasting my possessions. How could he commend this unrighteous steward. So look at verse 8. This is a very important hinge point of the, uh, the parable. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Now keep in mind that the original text doesn't have any quotation marks, and so we have to figure out when it comes to verse 8... What part is the parable, and what part is our Lord speaking about it or commenting on it? And if you look at it, I think the most natural reading is that when it says the master commended the steward, we're within the context of the parable, the story. But then when we come to the word for in verse 8, we are now hearing our Lord's comment upon the point of the parable. But let's begin with the first phrase, the master commended the unjust Steward. Now, what was he commending him for? Was the master commending the steward for his unrighteous actions? I don't think so. I don't think the master had any interest in losing his property any further than that. I think the commendation was narrowly limited to the shrewdness. It was like reflecting on, you just got swindled, but you're pretty amazed by how the guy did it. It's something like that. You're thinking wow, that's cunning. You're not, you're not excited about it. You're not, you're not glad that you were swindled, but you're thinking, that is pretty shrewd. That was pretty thoughtful stuff. The steward now had a safe exit ramp from his job because the debtors were obligated to help him. And so the point of transition comes at the middle of verse 8, and that's when we get to the application of this whole story. Let's look at what Jesus says. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. It's a little bit of an implicit or veiled rebuke of the sons of light. Uh, it's saying, well, these, these are so shrewd. These, these people of the world, they know how to handle their, their money and possessions to this, this self-based advantage. They, they're pretty thoughtful about it. And he's saying, are we the sons of light shrewd? when it comes to using our wealth for eternal means, for, for the right reasons, for righteous actions? 
And so we come now to the point of the parable's application, and verses 9 through 13 actually includes a number of applications that will help us understand the parable and its meaning. So I'm going to list for you three applications from these verses. And as I said, the story is a little strange, but the applications are quite simple. Number one application, use your worldly wealth, meaning the physical possessions that God gives you, to gain everlasting friends. That's what verse 9 says. I will have to explain what that means, but that's what verse 9 says. Secondly, be faithful with your earthly possessions so that God will entrust to you something far better. True riches, it says in verses 10 through 12. And then 13, do not allow money to master you as a god, but rather serve God and not money. Those are the points. So let's take each of these. I'm going to read verses 9 through 13 together because they sort of mutually support one another in terms of their application. Verse 9, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now it's noteworthy that in verse 9, our Lord says, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. And this is, I think, where we get a little tripped up in the parable because on one hand he's saying do something good in verse 9, but then he calls mammon unrighteous. And the word mammon, uh, children, just as a reminder, is, was a word that was used in Jesus' day in that language that referred to possessions and wealth. It, it could have, of course, included money like coins, but it included all of the stuff that God gave us. So you could just say unrighteous stuff or just stuff. That's what mammon refers to. But our Lord, when he calls it unrighteous mammon, I do not believe that he's saying money or possessions are inherently evil. Rather, what I believe he is saying is that the characteristic pattern of people in the world is to use these things unrighteously. They take their possessions, they live for self, they are all about their kingdom, and he's saying take the things that they use, this stuff that we call unrighteous mammon, and use it for an eternal purpose. You see, brothers and sisters, we also are stewards. This is actually the point of connection. Not that it says this exactly. It doesn't use the word steward for us, but it does talk about entrusting. We have been entrusted with mammon, with possessions. God has given all of us stuff. And the question is, are we faithful with it according to the dispensation, the, the calling that our Lord Jesus Christ would give us? Now let's think about verse 9, because this, I think, is perhaps the most puzzling of the applications. It says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. And this is where our Lord is taking the parable, the story, with this man trying to get a home, and he's connecting it to our need for an eternal home. We're all going to die one day, 
if our Lord Jesus does not return first. And we're going to need somewhere to go, right? As Paul says, if our earthly tent is destroyed, we have a body, or we have a home in the heavens, not made with hands. So we need a home when we die. And the point of verse 9 is this. Use your wealth faithfully according to God's commandments to make friends so that when you fail, when you die, you will enter that everlasting home that has been prepared for you. Now, what does it mean to make friends in a, it, with these, these possessions? Well, likely by way of contrast, if the unrighteous steward made friends in an unrighteous manner by a deceitful and unjust use of wealth, then we as followers of Christ should use the wealth God entrusts to us in a faithful manner, which means in a generous, loving, and caring way to those that are in need. Of course, a godly and generous use of wealth doesn't merit our way into heaven, right? We can't gain our way into heaven by our giving. But it is evidence of where our heart is, isn't it? When we use our wealth for the good of others. When we make friends with these possessions that God has given us. Now, I think this interpretation of verse 9 is reinforced if you think about the very next parable that is told in Luke 16. So remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I, I mentioned that earlier. You have this rich man has plenty of an abundance. He feasted sumptuously every day. And in God's providence, there was a poor man that was placed at the door of this rich man. I mean, talk about the poor coming to you, right? Or talk about an opportunity that God has placed before you to do something, to do good. And this rich man did nothing for this Lazarus that was laid at his gates. He never made friends with Lazarus. He didn't think about his eternal home. And what happens at the end of the parable? Well, the the rich man did not prepare for his eternal home. He ends up in hell. And where is Lazarus? He's in the the bosom of Abraham, this place of intimacy. He's, He's with the believing ones. He's with Abraham in heaven, but not the rich man. The rich man did not think about his future. He could only think a few days ahead towards his meals and his luxury, and so he didn't make friends with his wealth. He didn't think about an eternal home that he would need. And you'll actually notice there is a, a, a variant in the, the, the passage. If you, if you have the ESV, you'll see it, it says, when it fails they may receive you into an eternal home. But in the, in the traditional text, it actually says, when you fail. It's like two letters in Greek. It's a very slight difference, but an important difference in terms of its meaning. It's saying, when you fail, and that I do believe is referring to the day of our death. When it comes time and, and the stewardship is done, where are you going to go? And so the point is then, use these things that God has given you to love others, to bless others, to make friends, and that when you come into glory, guess who's going to greet you there? You're going to have all your your friends. You could say, there's that guy we helped. There's those brothers and sisters in that other land that we were caring for, and you you embrace them, and here's, here's some of your eternal friends that you were all heading to this eternal home, and you were thinking about that future, and you wanted to bless those who you were to meet one day in heaven. And so we go on then to verses 10 through 12. 
I'll just read verse 11 right here. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? So verse 11 brings much clarity to us. It's saying there's these, this, this mammon that just, it's earthly possessions. It doesn't last forever. Moth and rust destroy it. But if you're not faithful with those things, will God entrust to you those lasting riches that never perish? You're a steward, once again, I remind us. We are stewards, and the Lord is going to bestow upon us an eternal inheritance one day, but what our Lord calls us to do right now is to be faithful with our stewardship, to use what he has given us for those righteous kingdom-seeking ends. And so I ask, brothers and sisters, tonight, what does the use of your money and the use of your possessions reveal about your heart? The heart of the Pharisees were an abomination in the sight of God because they were given over to covetousness. They, for many of them, their God was mammon. That's what they lived for, these things that perish. Despite all their pretensions to godliness, despite their outward show of piety, and despite all their ritual observances of holiness, their hearts were black with covetousness. And so it could be with us as well, brothers and sisters. We could make these outward pretensions of godliness, but what if our hearts are black with covetousness? What if we are after all the things of this life and we really don't look beyond that? We don't think about the eternal. We don't think about that eternal home. We don't think about our lives as a stewardship entrusted to us. Remember that it is possible to worship at the altar of money if you have a little or if you have a lot. It's not just rich people that struggle with it. It's not, you can have very, very poor people, people that are in deep poverty, but they worship the God Mammon. Now, the God Mammon's not giving them a lot right now, but they're betting on it, sometimes literally, you know, buying the lottery, and, and this is what they're after. They love the God Mammon. You could be rich, you could be poor, you could be middle class. It does not matter. Many people serve this God. And so what you do with whatever God has entrusted to you reveals your heart. Our Lord Jesus says to us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what verse 13 brings us to, is that final point of this section. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. Now that verb serve is the verb for to be a slave to, to be enslaved to something. You cannot be a slave of God and a slave of mammon. It's not possible. You are enslaved to one master at a time. You cannot retain both allegiances. And so it is with material possessions. If you, if you live for money, then it's going to be your God and you're going to have to serve it. You're going to have to do whatever it, it would demand of you. Philip Ryken, he comments on verse 13, he puts this in a, in a powerful way. He says, if we do not master our money by using it for the glory of God, then it will master us, and we will end up bankrupt for eternity. As Jesus so often did, he presses us for real, undivided commitment. He says, who do you serve? Who do you live for? So many in this world live for mammon. It's an amazing thing if you think about it, okay? It's going to rust and rot. Thieves can steal it. 
Hurricanes can destroy it. You know, just take a look at the Fort Myers Beach and all those boats, you know, those million-dollar yachts and so forth all stacked up. What if you were living for that? And the insurance company's not going to pay it out anymore. What are you going to do now? It's gone. So many in this world live for such fleeting things, but we, brothers and sisters, we, we can live for something that lasts. We can take these temporal things, a little bit of money here and a car here and a house here, and, and we can use these things for the glory of God, for the kingdom of Christ, and one day we will be entrusted with what is called true riches. You don't have true riches right now. If you thought you did, you're wrong. You don't have true riches. But if you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, he has promised that that's what he's going to give to all those who seek his kingdom and its righteousness. And so to be, and as we we remember the parable of the rich fool, I think this uh, phrase at the end of the parable of the rich fool is very helpful. Our brother Bill Roach brought this out recently. Uh, Remember the end. God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So we can take our possessions and we can be rich towards God with them. The way that we, we use these possessions should be sacrificially for our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if someone was to study your life for a year, if they had access to all your accounts, all the deposits and withdrawals, uh, they were able to track your budget, perhaps monthly you had to meet with them and tell them you know, why you made this choice for that thing, and, and so just do an audit of my life. What would they say is your treasure? What would they say is important to you after that audit? Well, I can tell you that there is an audit coming. It may not be in that form, but there is an eternal audit of your heart that is coming on the day of judgment. And it will be very clear what you served, who you served. It will be those who know that they are much beloved by God, who will be the most free in their use of material wealth for the blessing of others. Material possessions and how we use them, it's just evidence of what we live for and who we live for. And if we are those who have been set free by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, then we should experience freedom from the love of money in this sinful way. They will pour contempt on all earthly riches because they know that the true riches are found in Jesus Christ. They're so so amazed and astounded by the unsearchable riches of Christ that the riches of this world are so, uh, so pale in comparison to those riches. Their thinking will be shaped by verses like 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Does that verse mean that you, through his poverty, might be given $10 million and have all these wonderful material earthly possessions? Is that what the verse is about? No, no. Something, something much better than that. These are eternal riches. The riches of Christ's redemption. Those who are following Jesus will have their, their goals and priorities shaped by Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. They're not going to be worried about adding things because they're not seeking those things. Just letting God take care of whatever they need on this pilgrim journey. And they're looking forward to those eternal riches that will be far, far better than anything else that could be entrusted to us now.
So brothers and sisters, as you see, this parable is in many ways quite straightforward. It comes with a very important application for us to consider our hearts, to consider our stewardship, to consider who are we serving, God or mammon. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of our Lord Jesus, whose parables provide for us these concrete and powerful illustrations, and which reveal important truth to us. And We ask that you would cleanse our hearts from all idols and the idol of the love of money. We pray that as your servants, we would be wholehearted in our devotion to serve one master, one Lord, and not the God of mammon. We ask that you would make us to be a generous-hearted people, that we would know that we have freely received all things, and so then we would freely give. Give us those kinds of hearts that are so full of the love of God and Christ uh, that we can't but wait to find ways to bless others, both through loving actions, but also through the giving of our material possessions. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.